Hello and welcome to the Sober Down podcast. Uh, my name is I Must and I'm here today to do another interview. So before we start, I'd like to just say, if you haven't already, please go and check out the SoberTownPodcast.com. Uh, we've got podcasts, we've got Todd's Sober Toolbox, we've got Sobriety Discussions, Your Body on Booze, Kids Toolbox, Sobriety Inspiration, like Before and After Alcohol, Sobriety Tattoos, Wall of Fame, Recovery Resources. It's just like one-stop shop for recovery and it's really good. Go and check it out. Um, I'd also like to mention the I Am Sober app, which is where a lot of us who, who, who do the, the um, Sober Town podcast got together. And it's also a great resource. And I don't think that I would be here today without it. So um, without further ado, I'm very excited to announce my guest today, which is Person Irresponsible. And she's done an amazing thing. She's written a book. <laughs> and she's um, going to tell us all about it. So, hi. <laughs> Hi, hi, so thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, so am I. So I've, I've actually just started reading your book. I, I only ordered it a few days ago and I've got a little bit of the way in, but it's it's really, really exciting. Thank you. Thanks. Yes, it was quite a journey and it was it only happened because I'm sober. So let's get that straight. You know, it would never have happened if I was still drinking. Yeah. And uh, and it charts, you know, me walking from Mexico to Canada. Uh, which in other words across America uh, which is quite a long way and uh, and and I was I'm still am fat female <laughs> at the time in my fourth year of sobriety uh, I'm 40 something unfortunately and occasionally funny and uh and mostly are we allowed to swear on this podcast yeah you can say whatever oh and mostly fucked uh so <laughs> so it's, you know it's not I'm not one of those outdoorsy types I'm not one of those people that would say oh you know I'd love to go for a really long hike and just be in the trees for days on end because uh, that's not how my thinking worked um and so it charts that but you know, straight away, I realized straight away that this was going to be an epic journey and it was way beyond my skill set. And all I had to fall back on was everything that I'd learned along the way in recovery. Yeah. And, uh, and and I had to draw, you know, it really was a journey of fortitude. And, and I now know that recovering alcoholics such as myself, we have endless amounts of fortitude. You know, the ability to suffer in order to attain whatever it is you want to attain um, we, we probably do better than anyone else, which is why we could struggle through all those hangovers and carry on drinking. It's like the goal is yeah. to get pissed. So I will drink my way through whatever I need to drink my way through in order to black out, pass out, not be present in day-to-day -day life. So in one thing, you know, that's that's something I've learned about myself is I can suffer immensely. <laughs> and I, indeed I did. <laughs> We've got stamina, if nothing else, eh? Absolutely, and determinate. <laughs> no one can tell us we're wrong. <laughs> So um, how how did you how did you do you want to start at the beginning? How did you get to sort of being an alcoholic? Where did your story start? <laughs> Where does my story start? It's I genuinely can't say whether alcoholics are born or made. Um, I think it's different for different people. You know, I, I, I'm I'm in AA and I've um, and that's how I got sober. And, and other you know other systems are available. It's just that I yeah. I went to AA first and foremost. And uh, and I'm because, it, you know, it is recovery and because sobriety is so delicate and so precious, I'm not willing to explore any other system because there's too much at stake. So so I talk about AA because that's what I've, I've used. 
Uh, and so what I learned in AA was that for some of us, we just cannot, there's no mechanism in us, no biological response in us that says, I've had enough. If I have one glass, then I need a second glass, then I need a third glass, and then I need the whole fucking bottle and yours too, please. Yeah. And there's just no, there's nothing. There's no off button. There's no, it doesn't make me dizzy. It doesn't make me sick. It makes me really happy, jolly. It's a mood changer. It never occurred to me. I never understood that this doesn't happen to everyone, that yeah. it only happens to some of us. And therefore, if you have that reaction, potentially you're an alcoholic. Now, nobody likes the term alcoholic. It's not something, you know, it's not like, you know, queen of the village, is it? It's, it's not something you want to be. And so, you know, the term alcoholic is very, very stigmatized. And that's why, you know, anonymity is so important to us. But it's just that that basic response is, you know, what makes an alcoholic an alcoholic. But there's one other aspect, which is that I have a belief system that drinking is fun, that it's my right, that it's something I have to do, that life is boring without it. And therefore, I'm always going to be drinking. And I've got a body that's going to ensure that I'm always going to get into trouble and build up regrets and the shame and all. You know, I mean, I was terrible. I was mostly a homebound drinker. And if you were wrong on the internet, I was going to find you and correct you. You know, I was that picked up twat on the internet that nobody wanted to be read. And, uh, and so, you know, I own an awful lot of people, an awful lot of, I'm really sorry, I was really drunk and a total twat. And I don't do that anymore. I don't have to worry about what I put on out in the big bad world anymore. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I, it took me a long time to unlearn the fact that on a Friday night, I didn't have a right to drink. Nobody has a right to drink. But I honestly believe that Friday nights were for drinking mm -hmm. and so were Saturday nights. And by the end, most of the other nights of the week as well were, mm -hmm. you know, so I, I never drank before six o'clock because if you did, you're an alcoholic. That was one of my rules. <laughs> that I, had to unlearn. I never drank in the mornings. I didn't necessarily drink seven days a week. I was still just about holding life together. Um, but I, you know, if I could have, I would have been drinking around the clock you know not necessarily round the clock but I could have been I would have been drinking every day if I could have yeah. got away with it so that's the point that that I realized that perhaps drinking had more control of me than I wanted to admit yeah and did you did you have some awful moment where you thought like shit I've got to sort this out or or did you just have a a, a slow build-up of just the all the awful feelings all the time and thinking oh my life <laughs> Well, I remember, I mean, I remember the night I rang AA and I was sat there really rehearsing my mind what I was going to say, because all I wanted them to tell me was I wasn't an alcoholic. You know, I just, that's all I wanted to know. No, you're but fine. I, thought, Carry I on. didn't want to really trouble them, you know, so I left it until quite late at night. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. And I remember thinking for ages, like, how am I going to explain to her how I'm feeling? And I, it took about an hour before I went, I know how I'm feeling. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. So when I finally made this phone call, the woman said, well, are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? And I was like, that's my line. <laughs> you know, and that's how it was. I was just, I was done. The hangovers by now were horrific, you know, because I was drinking on a, on a bad night, inverted commas. I'd have two bottles of red wine and probably a quarter of a bottle of Bacardi and Coke. Um, quarter of a bottle of Bacardi and a dash of Coke. And, uh, and if there was no <laughs> um so I was drinking quite you know for a woman that's that's intense I've, I've met people who were drinking a hell of a lot more than that along the way yeah 
it's not about how much you drink it's about what happens when you drink and yeah. I know but that's that was a bad night for me and you know the next day was particularly horrific um so yes yeah, so it was nothing happened I never got done drink driving I never lost a job you know all of these things that that can happen never happened but that kept me in denial really mm. uh, it was just you know I was just I didn't even want to stop I didn't want to quit I just wanted a break from the stuff and uh and I knew that AA is I'm so sorry the cat's going to join me <laughs> meeting so the cat is attracted like a magnet um so I just knew that I wanted a break from the stuff and in this country we do something called dry January and I'm so sorry there's a cat uh, and dry January I I had worked out in my infinite alcoholic wisdom that January has 31 days in it which is a bit excessive for a month and February is a much better time to do a break from the drinking because there's only 28 days <laughs> <laughs> and I had tried doing dry February and I think I got to about day 10 I mean I was climbing the bloody walls life had never been more miserable and mm. uh and I was getting divorced at the time. And, you know, if you were getting divorced, then, you know, you'd know how much pressure I was under. And therefore, you know, it was just better to drink my way through it. Fast forward another year. I'm not getting divorced anymore. I'm living my happy ever after, inverted commas. And, uh, and I think I managed four days. And then I was just like, oh, sorry, I've got to drink. And that's when it really dawned on me. I can't, I can't actually get a whole week of no drinking. And, and I, I'm struggling to not drink. I'm struggling mm. to to chill out, to relax, to, to anything. Mm. And I'm left to my own devices. I couldn't maintain, I couldn't get any head of steam. So that's when I came up with the ingenious idea of going to the experts. I thought, well, those bloody alcoholics, if they can do it, just go and hang out with them for a month. They'll show you what to do. And hey, presto, you'll get your dry February done. Albeit it's now the middle of March. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I and uh, and and I, I was up in Edinburgh and and, uh, and I went to this meeting it was all men and they all had grey hair and I was just like oh my god you know and in my narrow-minded judgment I was like and I bet you've all just come out of prison and all screaming <laughs> and, and there was this great big guy covered in tattoos and he went darling it's the first drink that does your damage and I was like okay <laughs> it's about the eighth or ninth for me but if you're that kind of lightweight that's on you yeah um, and then somebody else was like, you know, you get a 30 meetings in 30 days. And I was like, well, blimey, that's a bit excessive. <laughs> you know, thinking yes. one or two, maybe yes. on a Wednesday, Thursday, check the TV. There's a commitment. <laughs> See which night's more boring. Then I'll go to one of your stupid AA meetings. And uh, and the Scottish, and I apologise, always apologise to anyone that's Scottish if they're listening to this. But the, the Scottish accent to my ears, it doesn't ever sound like they're requesting anything. It sounds like. <laughs> They're saying to you, do this or we're going to kill you. Do you can then? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I got home, but miraculously, I didn't want to drink when I got home. And so the next day I thought, you know what? I can sit here climbing the walls tonight or I can go to one of their stupid meetings. And I went to one of their stupid meetings. And all I did was make, I didn't do it because somebody told me to do 30 meetings in 30 days. And besides which I only needed 28. Um, I did it because I just it was better than sitting there climbing the walls you know wanting yeah. to drink depriving yourself of drinking it was a distraction but somehow it just worked and I surprised myself because I picked up you get little chips in AA that demarc you know each month of sobriety 
and I picked up my first month chip and a little red chip and I was just like wow you know this is really cool <laughs> and then somebody went you got a 60 mittens in 60 days lassie do you ken hen and I was like <laughs> oh blah and that, but I was feeling physically a lot better as you do. You know, the housework's a lot easier than <laughs> going out for a walk. I mean, who knew what that was going to be like? Mm. Um, you know, and straight away I bought a little bicycle because I was like, right, I'm on a health kick. You know, I'm going to cycle everywhere. Yeah. My poor old yeah. undercarriage has never recovered. And I sold the bike about a week later. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I ended up going to 60 and 60. And I pick up my month two chip and I'm all super excited. And then some git says, you got a 1990 and I was like you're kidding you know this is really excessive and uh, but again I did because it was working and it was just something about if I could do three months sober then hallelujah I'm cured you know I'll be able to drink sensibly mm. again yeah I really day 72 um, because I hadn't got it I hadn't understood anything I wasn't listening and I can blame the Scots for not understanding their accent but quite frankly I wasn't listening that's the truth of the matter and I didn't believe I was an alcoholic I just had a drinking problem and uh, and if they'd had my life they'd drink too and all of those bullshit excuses that that we tell ourselves so I relapsed on day 72 and then I, I never told anybody and I carried on picking up my monthly chips because I hadn't got the fact that in AA it's it's a place to just be honest. You can be as honest mm-hmm. as you like. No one's about an eyelid. You know, there's some people that have done some pretty horrendous things on drink there. And, and you know, so if you're feeling inferior, what are you feeling inferior to? That's totally in your own mind. Um, and so I, you know, I carry on getting my monthly chips. But actually, I then, after my relapse, I thought, blimey, I have actually got a problem. I actually can't stop drinking. And what they're saying is making sense to me. Mm-hmm. And how the thing that shocked me was all these grown men and they would talk from the heart about how they felt and I never in my life had felt capable of telling another human being how I really deeply felt inside mm. that I hated myself that I hated other people that um you know I loathed me I really truly loathed myself underneath and I felt really insecure I always felt less than no matter what no matter what my accomplishments in life were I always felt like it was more luck than judgment mm. and I was observing and and I was unlikable um and yet here was I amongst all these people that just accepted me despite this big bad secret you know it was now out within the rooms obviously it wasn't out in real life but within the rooms I was happy to talk about my drinking and the things it had me doing and and, and I didn't have to feel shamed anymore. And that that was the liberation. And and it suddenly, you know, I started hearing what I needed to hear and it suddenly occurred to me, blimey, I am an alcoholic. I've always been an alcoholic since probably my early twenties. That's probably when I crossed the line. And and uh, and it, all that happened was my binges got closer and closer and the, the amount I drank to get to my, you know, warm, fuzzy feeling had to increase. And that warm, fuzzy feeling shrank over time and eventually, stop working and that my last drink I never got a buzz and I was terrified because it was like well now what am I going to do if alcohol's not working what am I going to do now mm-hmm. and that's most frightened I've ever been in my life and and that's really when I was like right I'm gonna I'm gonna embrace recovery I'm just gonna do it and um, mm-hmm. and they say you know don't make any big changes in the first year so I jacked in my job and moved countries <laughs> got a new job <laughs> And, uh, and I came down to the Cotswolds and, uh, and I've been here ever since, except for when I went to America. And, and I've taken it seriously ever since. And, it, and it's become a really big part of my life. So just a question, when, when you um, had 
when you relapse at 72 days, did did you relapse for long? Was it just like a day and, and you went back to getting your chips or, or, or did it take you a little while to clamber back on the wagon? It was a one night special. And, okay. uh, and I always, <laughs> just to prove, there's a, there's a line in AA that, that is read out pretty much at every meeting, which is if you're willing to go to any lengths, <laughs> then you may be ready for certain steps. And, it, and, and that's the line that haunted me. Because what I got some bad news in that day, and in my head I was thinking, well, this justifies a drink. If you'd had this bad news, you'd drink too. And and for me, it seemed perfectly reasonable as a response to go and get drunk on this. Um, never occurred to me that other people that were non-alcoholic would just deal with it, you know. Whereas I wanted to escape from it. And I remember sitting. I was in my living room in, in my little Edinburgh flat, and and I remember sitting there holding on to the coffee table for dear life thinking if I can just get to 10 o'clock then I'll be fine then I won't be able to drink because in Scotland you can't buy booze easily after 10 o'clock at night now I'm sure there are places that you can buy booze illegally but the only people I knew in Scotland were in bloody AA and they weren't going to tell me were they you know and I remember thinking if I can just if I can just get till 10 then I know I'll be safe from drinking and then I'll be fine and at one minute past 10, I jumped in my car and drove to England. And that's when I realised if you're willing to go for any lengths to get booze, you've probably got a small problem with the booze. Mm. And I had this wrestling head, this, this good versus evil mindset going on the whole overnight from 10 o'clock yeah. to 6 o'clock. At 4 o'clock in the morning, I had driven across the border many times. I'd driven to go and get booze, turned around at the last minute, gone back, no, don't do this, got back across the border, turned around, gone back. It was just chaos in my mind. And at four o'clock in the morning, I bought some cigarettes and I'd stopped smoking at that point. And I remember thinking, well, this is, this is better than drinking, so I'll smoke instead. And then I drove around for another two hours, not daring to smoke in case I crashed the car. <laughs> just nuts. And eventually I pulled up outside my house. There's a little river in Musselboro. And I pulled up outside my house and I lit up a cigarette and I was sick. And then so I was like, well, you've got to smoke through this, don't you? You have to just keep persevering. And, <laughs> and so I smoked. There was a pack of 10 that you could still buy in Scotland at the time. And, um, and yeah, I smoked several of those and, and smoked through that reaction. And, uh, and then I walked across the road and bought two bottles of wine. You know, that was how chaotic that whole night was. Didn't drink them before six o'clock in the evening. They sat there and I looked at them all bloody day. Paced, you know, why is it not six o'clock yet? That whole 24 hours was absolutely, I was in bits. And, um, and very reactive, which I think, you know, as drinkers can be, because we haven't grown up and learned to react to things differently. And, and uh, yeah, so I waited till six o'clock and then I poured the first glass of wine and it did nothing, nothing. There was no... There was no respite. There was no reaction. And then I poured the second glass of wine. Again, same principle. You've got to drink through this. You've got to drink until you get to the point that you need. And it did nothing. It was like drinking cat's piss. And, um, and that's when I realised what I'd been doing for the last 24 hours. And, and, and I just looked at this bottle and I thought, if I keep on drinking, I'm dead. It's over. And I just knew then it was over. I didn't want it to be over. I was so mad. I was so angry at AA for ruining my drinking. But I knew it was over. Um, and so, like I say, I slumped to a meeting that night. No, so it was that would have been a Saturday. So I slumped to a meeting on the Sunday night and, and then heard the share. And they talked about my style of drinking. So they weren't round-the-clock drinkers. And they weren't vodka drinkers, you know, on a park bench or anything like that. They very much home-based, very private, 
um, had all these rules and regulations. They just told how I, they just explained how I drank. And it was like, blimey, if you're an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. And so in that weekend, everything changed. You know, my, I had this unusual reaction that I didn't want more and I couldn't drink anymore. And I just, you know, in AA, they'd, they'd just say it was lifted. It was just that, that moment when it was removed, that obsession or whatever. And I just had, I knew that was probably going to be my only window of, mm. of clear thinking about my drinking. Um, and like I say, then heard the share that changed my life because it was like I could relate to everything that the guy said. And, and that's that moment that I thought, okay, I give up. I can't drink anymore. I don't like mm. it and I'm angry about it, but that's the fact. Hmm. Yeah. So, so, so after after that, you've moved down to the Cotswolds, <laughs> got a job, started yeah. a new life, and uh, yeah. and and what were you up to then? Well, I got this job, and it was a high drinking culture. Now, lots of jobs in this country. You know, I've sat through so many meetings. People going, "Well, you know, it's a high drinking culture," and it's like every profession professes that they are to a high drinking culture. Yeah. <laughs> I can conclude is that we're a high drinking culture and the profession is irrelevant do you know what I mean yeah. <laughs> yeah. we do worship alcohol in the UK you know we are we are a hard drinking country but that said when you actually look at the statistics four out of five people don't drink that much it's one in yeah. five of us that are obsessed with the stuff and we walk how we view the world um and I'd got this job and and the the managing director was obsessed with booze and and he he really encouraged a lot of drinking at work and, and to the extent that on a Friday they bring crates and crates of beer into work and people would just drink from sort of lunchtime onwards and he would encourage it. Now I wonder if he's got a problem with the booze, you know, yeah. looking back. And, uh, and I said to him once, I said, look, can you just buy some J2Os or something that so I feel like I'm included and, and you know, because I don't, I don't drink, and I, I stopped drinking, I'm really enjoying not drinking, and I didn't tell him I was in AA, it's nobody's business, you know, I just, you know, just became one of those oddballs that doesn't drink, <laughs> and, um, and he treated me like an oddball that doesn't drink, and, and told me I needed to get a life, and cheer up, and be more fun, you know, and, um, and I remember thinking, you know, watching these people, some of them obviously drank more than others, you know, normal people, and, um, and he said, no, he wouldn't. He would only buy beer because this was a fun company to work for. And if I didn't know how to have fun, then it was my problem. And I thought that's that really sums up the mindset of, of some of us. And um, and I, it was a real job with a lot of presenteeism. And, and they were very much he was a real micromanager and he wanted control over all of my time. And because of this presenteeism, I couldn't get to meetings during the week. I could only really get to one on a Saturday night. And when in my first year of recovery it's all about not drinking that really is the mm. obsession is how do I cope with life events all year round anniversaries Christmases birthdays funerals you know weddings without drinking that that really dominates your thinking or most of our thinking for the first year and uh you know and it, oh sorry I'm losing my train of thought you were saying that you went to a meeting on a Saturday night that was it and that was all I could get to and it wasn't enough and um and after sort of eight months of this job, we'd gone to a, a board meeting and, and he'd announced that, you know, the company wasn't doing as well as he wanted. So from now on, we were going to be working weekends and he didn't care what we thought about that, you know, because work is fun, you know, and we can just drink and party at work. And I remember thinking, this isn't, I can't do this. I just can't do it. So 
I quit and I had enough savings at the time that I could retrain and do something else and 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 I could subsist on on you know small small income and that's what I did and that's really that probably the biggest decision I've ever made in my life it's terrifying giving up your work and mm. making the decision I'm going to put my recovery first and I didn't know how ill I was you know mentally I was really unwell and 18 months on from that I was diagnosed with um, post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of a very traumatic childhood and and when my marriage collapsed that had all fed in and I, I really was stuck in a cycle of anxiety and depression anxiety and depression and as much as I was put in recovery first I wasn't getting very well mentally um and so you know it was looking back you know financially a terrible decision but from my mental health perspective the best decision I've ever made and, mm. and I was able recovery and really throwing myself into this and that culmin you know and it's just one thing leads to another which leads to another and that culminates to me and you know I've got a great social life at this point and I've got a, you know this really close friend and who's then watches a film called Wild and she's you've got to watch this film and it's like no I don't <laughs> <And then laughs> I, I have to say I'm pretty inspired to watch that film myself now <laughs> <laughs> it's mad isn't it I'm a bit scared too. God knows where it lead. <laughs> <laughs> well, take it from me. Don't let it lead you to it. Think, oh, I really like to try walking across America. <laughs> I mean, she did it. She did a thousand miles, and that was probably enough. <laughs> it was like, right. well, I'm twice as old. I'll have to do, you know, or two and a half so, times. So, so to explain to our listeners, you watched mm. you watched that film. And that yep. led you, the, the film is about a lady doing the Pacific Coast Trail. Pacific Crest Trail. I called it the Pacific Coast Trail as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's it's your nowhere near the coast. On the back, isn't it? Yeah. And and but it was it was more like realizing that I have these obsessional tendencies. So once I've watched a film, I've got to know everything about it. And then you know, so then you end up watching more films, and then you end up reading more books. And then before you know it, you've got yourself a permit to go and do it yourself. And it's like <gasps> it never occurred to me that I really wasn't capable of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and I really wasn't capable of doing it um so yeah so warning don't don't if you've got an obsessional mind like I have don't watch films that are going to inspire you to do this <laughs> that are going to lead you down a very very long path <laughs> oh my lord yeah I mean she she walked a thousand miles and and that's probably about a good number you know what I mean and she walked the nice bits as well she sort of jumped past the really the really sketchy hideous ropey life-threatening bits and uh yeah <laughs> so, so how many miles did you walk well the the actual trail the pacific crest trail is 2653 miles and wow. that sounds like a i know that sounds like a hell of a lot what i haven't factored in of course is you've got to walk on and off the trail to get resupply so there was a certain point uh, you know in on the trail that it took me a day and a half to walk off the trail and then, of course, you've got to walk a day and a half to get back on the trail. Wow. And, you know, the Pacific Crest Trail is, is the world's longest trail, continuous trail. So there are other trails that are technically longer, but they are not continuous. So you can you can take different routes and things. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it, I have no idea how many miles I walked. I really I couldn't. <laughs> tell you, but it was, you know, probably close on 3000 if I really wow. sort of tried to. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot, a hell of a lot. Um, yeah. you know, and I got lost a lot as well so I did lots of bonus miles that I didn't need to do yeah that's right from the beginning because I'm only at the beginning of the book and I've and I've just read you've already 
couple of stoned hippies sent you the wrong way. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know, it's, oh, just awful. <laughs> no, I think it's amazing. I mean, I, what I wanted to ask you as well was, like, did you have dreams of writing a book always, you know, before you gave up alcohol, before you did this? Did, was a book always in the pipeline for you or, or or did you do that journey and think I can't not write a book now? <laughs> I knew I knew that's a tough one to answer. I knew before I set out I was going to write a book. So I actually bizarrely took a laptop with me and I would type a thousand words a night of just my thoughts, feelings, wow. ideas. Um, so it was a real discipline. Um, to do that and, and I used to be really embarrassed of people say well, you know the real competitive how much does your pack weigh and it's a, it's a sort of race to the bottom well mine weighs minus three kilos you know um, and I'd say well I don't really know but I have got a laptop in there and people are like you've got a laptop <laughs> that's like yeah <laughs> I mean it's a lightweight Chromebook but it you know it still weighs I, I think that one weighed about 1.8 kilos or something um and, you know how much everything in the world weighs now don't you, you? <laughs> and like you throw away like a small bag of rubbish like that and psychologically it makes the most profound difference to how yeah. how much you estimate your pack weighs it's all you know you're in so much pain and as you lose weight and I had a lot of weight to lose obviously you know your backpack no longer fits you and, and then it, it hurts your back and your spine and your shoulders and your hips and yeah the whole thing weight becomes the obsession of everything and by the end, you know, I'd sit and stand in supermarkets, like holding pieces of bread, going, "Which one weighs more?" Say <laughs> that one. Say that one. It's just obsessed with the whole thing because um, it was hard. It was really, really hard. Yeah. Um, and you know, before I'd gone, I mean, this is how nuts I was. I'd never hiked in my life. You know, I just, I just didn't see what the fun of hiking was at all. And I had a friend who lived 19 miles away. And so I thought, oh, just to prove that I can do this, I'll walk to her house. And of course, I walked to her house, had a nice hot meal, had a nice, nice hot bath, collapsed in bed overnight and then walked 19 miles the next day. And I'm at 400 feet above sea level. You know, this starts at 4000 feet above mm. sea level and it goes up to 13000 feet above sea level at the highest point so all of these things there was no way of preparing for it and, and all of my again it was just naivety on my part thinking that oh well I've walked you know two days of 19 miles could barely walk by the end of it I'll be fine and of course you know I haven't walked with a backpack I haven't walked with a week's supply of food on my back and, and your tent and your clothes and, mm. and all your equipment and everything else and of course a laptop <laughs> so, mm, yeah so, so we should kind of say as well that that your your sort of principle of of walking it was yeah. was applying the twelve steps. To, to well, that's what I have draw on, and I think you know, and, and it just the twelve steps is a journey to use a real cliched term, and this was a journey. So there was this metaphorical and this very practical journey going on, and it's that sense of. You know, whenever you start a project, there's initial excitement mixed with trepidation, but but it's great. And, and you've got dreams and ideas and, and, and beliefs of what it's all going to be like. And then very quickly, reality, you know, hits home and you think, oh, God, you know, I really want to bail now. And this is where I think, again, alcoholics, we've got this fortitude to say, I'm going to hang in there. And everything I learned through getting into recovery I think I'd, I'd grown up in a very, how can I say this, 
in, in a very difficult environment. I had a, a parent who was a workaholic and a parent who was an alcoholic. So one was completely absent and, and the other one was, was sort of topping up, you know, just barely able to cope with life. And I went off to boarding school age eight. So I, I don't think I was a very well-adjusted child. And I think, you know, looking back at my life, definitely was going off the rails from quite a young age. And I was desperately trying to be a good girl, but not knowing how to be a, you know, a decent person. And so just getting things right, getting things wrong, being too sensitive, overreacting. And so when you get into recovery, you're still, most of us certainly are very emotionally immature. We haven't got good life skills. And we haven't got good resilience skills because we haven't learned them. We've learned how to cope in adversity, but we haven't, you know, we've learned how to survive, but we haven't learned how to thrive, shall I say. So I had to start drawing on all of the things that I'd been shown in AA, you know, there's, it's swapping one set of belief systems for another and everything that I used to believe now has to change. It doesn't have to change, but it does end up changing. So where I used to be all about instant gratification, you know, that's what an alcoholic does, feel stressed, have a drink, feel better. Now it's, you know, do the work, then get the reward, then feel better. So it turns everything on its head. So I didn't set out to write a book about the 12 steps, but the correlation between that sort of journey that I did and what it gave me and what I learned about myself along the way is exactly the same as what, what I got from, from going around the 12 steps several times. So it was like well, that kind of, it explains to other people, if you're interested in the 12 steps, most of us freak out. When you look at the 12 steps, you're like, no, thanks, not from me. It's really archaic language that uses God and I'm not into God. And it, it, you know, and then there's, you know, making amends and it's like, well, hang on a minute, I'm not apologizing to everyone I ever met, you know, I just, ugh. And, and actually, you know, the steps don't really solve themselves very well. But actually, once once you get into it and you realize that what they teach you is is really healthy stuff um, and then really changes how you think and feel about the world, then it's the same as a long distance journey. And I think, you know, when you're walking along on your own and I was on my own for hours and hours and days and days at a time, I've only got a head that works at a million miles an hour and it conjures up lots of painful memories and lots of shame and anger and disgust and, and fury and and there's nowhere for it to go because it's all in your head and and so then you have to learn how to process it and I've learned in, in AA how to process those kind of thoughts and feelings so they eventually dissipate and it took about 2,000 miles before I suddenly realized I'd run out of things to think about you know mean? <laughs> <laughs> and I had to go around and read just stuff. a little walk <laughs> just a little walk to clear my mind so, uh, yeah. <laughs> wow yeah I mean it's it's you know I, I haven't done AA but but listening to other people talking about it, it's just, it's just relatable to so many things, isn't it? The, tw the 12 steps. I mean, you know, I've been listening to a different book at the moment and, and that talks about how it's relatable to all sorts of different, different things in your life. So, um, yeah, I mean, really, really interesting. And, mm. you know, you, you mentioned to me before when we had a little chat that the, the halt the, and, and all of that, it was like really important in your in your walk. Well, again, it goes back to the lessons that you've shown in the first, you know, the first year is all about not drinking. And then once mm. you've sort of got the hang of not drinking, then then you can really start tackling your thinking because it's your thinking that leads to your drinking. Mm. And, uh, and and there's the four states, which are hungry, angry, lonely, tired. If I was hungry, I'd drink. 
and, and a lot of the time, I don't know about you, but when I was drinking to excess, it swells your stomach so you don't get hungry, so you don't eat. So a lot of us are very, we might be overweight, but we're very malnourished when we come into AA. Yeah. And a lot of people think, well, I'm going to stop drinking now, so I'm going to lose loads of weight. And being a woman, the reverse happens. You end up, because your body's malnourished, it stores fat. So yeah. then we end up really fat. So you're like, well, I might as well carry on drinking then. So it's learning about, you know, <laughs> it's learning that your body's malnourished and it needs nurturing. And, and the only way you're going to do that is to start eating regular meals and start eating a bit healthier. And, mm. and I certainly used to eat a lot of junk. You know, it was if when I was hungry or when I felt I ought to eat, it would be chips or something really quick and low energy, low effort yeah. to make. Um, and so my body hadn't, hadn't seen a sight of a vitamin for a long time. Um, yeah. Anger, obviously, very. I was a very reactive person. And I would perceive other people being, you know, either talking about me or, or um, being rude to me or being unfriendly to me. And so I'd, I was very, you know, I feared the world. And alcohol does really work on your anxiety. You know, it is liquid anxiety. And I always think alcohol now is like a payday loan, isn't it? You get that initial lump of cash and you think, brilliant, I can go sport and shopping. But you've got to pay it back with interest. And, and, and alcohol is exactly the same. It gives you that initial relief, but the next day it wants it back with interest. Yeah. And your anxiety Yeah, so true. Yeah. And so that's that, that anxiety. Um, and, and you know when you're anxious when we're afraid none of us react very well to things and and the more anxious you get the more reactive you become the more hostile you become to others the more difficult you get to work with or be friendly you know to others with and you know what I mean so you've got to then learn how to be less reactive and, and less prone to perhaps just counting to 10 and, and going away or walking away from a situation so all those little tiny skills loneliness is crippling alcohol absolutely was my best friend if i was bored alcohol gave me entertainment because it fired my imagination if i was sad it used to anesthetize me and if i was happy it would make me ecstatic it was a real game changer mm. so go that's where the meetings nobody has to go to a meeting but many of us find we go to more meetings than we actually need because they're social affairs and there's fellowship mm. and you want to out how so-and-so doing and you know how's that person doing and you become certainly for me a much healthier family a bunch of junks in a room but it it, it has that much warmer loving environment than I experienced as a child and, and I was in boarding school and those are not loving places or they certainly weren't when I was there and then tired as well you know when you're tired your reserves go down and, and your ability to withstand life goes down so all of those things lead me to a drink because that's how I react to everything so hungry angry lonely tired and of course, I'm on this trek and I'm hungry the whole time because I'm burning up to 6,000 calories a day and you can't, you just can't carry that much weight. Angry because I'm doing a lot of thinking and, and you know, I have been harmed, I have been hurt and I've hurt people. So I'm angry at myself and I think I should know better. Lonely, absolutely. There was a pandemic on. There was bugger all people in the wilderness and tired. I mean, tired didn't cover it. I was exhausted. I walked 12 or 13 hours a day. I barely slept at night because I was terrified I was going to be eaten alive by a bear. And <laughs> so that was, was, you know, this, I was just walking, as we'd say, hey, a walking dry drunk. You know, everywhere I went, how are you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, 
I don't think we've even mentioned that there was a pandemic on mine. You do you you literally land in America right at the time when the travel ban kicked in and yep. And I, like I said, I'm at the beginning and you're kind of like, should I carry on with this? Because they're telling everyone to go home and you can't chat. I mean, what you've done in the face of adversity is quite bonkers, darling. <laughs> but again, it, it comes back to, you know, traumatised children, children that pick up trauma or experience a lot of trauma in their childhood are great in survival mode. We are fantastic when it's chaotic. That's when we're at our best. And if you actually look at the sort of jobs that, that heavily traumatized people, they, a lot of them go into the army because they need the discipline and the control, but they also need the adventure and the excitement and the danger. And, and that replicates how things were for them in childhood. Or, you know, and that's certainly, I went overseas and, and, and worked overseas in, in very tough countries. So very drawn to that way of life. And, and I can now see that correlation very clearly. Um, and so when, you know, when it's chaotic and, and uncertain and everybody else is, is running around losing their heads, that's when, you know, adult children of alcoholics or adult survivors of childhood abuse, we come to the surface. That's when we're the cream of, of the milk, as it were. Mm. But it's day to day living that we can't do, which is why mm. drink that takes over to give us all of that artificial sense of danger and excitement and so on. Um, so the pandemic happening, I was sort of, you know, again, looking at my reaction, it's my reaction that teaches me about who I am deep down. And I was sat there thinking, well, this is just a load of hype. I don't get it. I don't get why everyone's losing their heads. We live in a hype filled world and the media is always screaming headlines. And what's the next big thing? We've just had a fuel crisis. We had ample fuel, yeah. <laughs> but we all lost our heads for a week. You know? yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If anything indicates that there's an alcoholic country, that's probably the proof. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> that's so, so true. Like, there's, no, there's no chaos here, but we're going to create carnage. Yeah. Um, um, and so I was having this very, well, we'll just wait and see. We'll just watch what's going on because that's what adult children of alcoholics do. We watch and we're great observers. I did, I, I was split, you know, because I felt like, well, if they, you know, if they cancel my insurance, my medical insurance, I don't want to get caught in America being, if I get bitten by a rattlesnake or anything, I need, in, you know, healthcare. It's, I'm, I'm financially destroyed if I need it in America. So I sort of hinged a lot of my decision on, well, the, they haven't cancelled my insurance, so I'll carry on for now. But I'd, I'd, I'd had a rental property over in Oxfordshire, and, and so I'd, I'd given everything up and put everything in storage. So initially, the UK lockdown was so stringent anyway. I'd have come back and been homeless. Now, I'm sure somebody somewhere would have put me up, but it was like, well, I might as well just carry on. I'm in the wilderness. I'm probably low risk. And everything that I'm, you know, I'm reading suggests that I'm low risk, but who knows? But there was certainly, again, it goes back to, interestingly enough, looking back, you know, the abuse we got, the, the small number of us that continued got tremendous amount of abuse on social media but when we were actually interacting with people, they were all like, carry on. This is what you're doing is great. Just carry on. So in real life, we met a lot of lovely people. But on social media, we got an awful lot of venom. And I think, again, you have to look at, you know, that social media is very akin to the voices in our head, isn't it? And, it, and it's an out, you know, of that sort of puerile and hatred and, and, and being able to bully other people and say what you really actually think because you're protected by your own anonymity. Um, 
and so but in real life we you know people are much nicer so yeah so there was there was some guilt and certainly when I came back and, and really lived within the pandemic it was like blimey you've just walked across the country and everybody else has been stuck at home and there was a bit of guilt around that sort of almost survivor's guilt but I, I wouldn't change my decision. I don't regret it. I just, I do yeah. feel sorry for everyone that didn't have the same right idea. Yeah, yeah we weren't all, this, all that lucky, but the sun did shine for a bit, so it wasn't all bad. Yeah, I heard yeah. all oh, the glorious summer to be trapped in my garden. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, without giving too much of, of your book away, because we want people to go and buy it, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm totally into it already. So I'll, de- I'll definitely be finishing it. Um, how has it been since you got back? Because, because that, that must okay, be. Came back and, yeah, the pandemic was still raging on, and, uh, and I, you know, I went into quarantine for two weeks that was that was what I was told to do and uh, and then a friend put me up in her back bedroom and then I managed to find a beautiful little cottage um on the edge of Warwickshire and and wrote the book and because there was no work you know we're still in lockdown central and there were AA meetings but they few and far between so pre-pandemic if I wanted to get to an AA meeting I had a choice of between two or three a day and I lived in the middle of nowhere you know yeah. I lived remote um and so that's how prolific they are but coming back I could get to two or three meetings a week and I'll have to drive 40 minutes to do that um because I live alone I opted to do that because I I now know you know I, I know when I was where the AA hotline just got flooded you know the, the number is 24 hours a day it's googleable and they just got overwhelmed with people mm. ringing um because they were terrified about their partner drinking too much or they themselves were drinking too much um uh, or their parent or whatever you know drinking did ramp up for a while and, and it, it settled down after a while too but we do know now you know I think of just me and myself I was in this beautiful little cottage and it, of course that thought crosses my mind I can get away with it I can get mm. away with it no one's gonna know no one's gonna miss me at a meeting no one's gonna check up on me because mm. I'm isolated uh, and we know you know alcoholics and addicts are really struggling with the with the the loneliness and, and the, the you know the prolonged loneliness and the the mm. absence of support systems and zoom has been fantastic it really has been fantastic yeah. it, it goes a long way but it's not quite a fellowship you know it, it doesn't mm. have quite that sense of of socialization that an in-person meeting would have um so yeah so I came back and I knew I was going to be isolated so you know it was perfect for writing a book what else were you going to do because there was nothing <laughs> else and so I did, you know, it felt like the pandemic had been made for me because I did six months of walking across the country and then six months of writing a book and, yeah. and, and no work to do. Or, oh, or what, no what a great use of the time. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And not, again, none of this would happen if I was still drinking, but it was it was tough. And and obviously in writing the book, um, I just sort of wanted to look at, because I listened to a podcast and, and this is where um, it was, the book was really useful to write because I'd listened to at least one or three podcasts a day in lieu of Zoom meetings or AA meetings, because mm. obviously I'm in the wilderness. And uh, and I kept hearing, you know, all sorts of statistics and facts in these podcasts. And many of them are produced in the 80s and 90s. And, and many of them produced one particular enclave of AA, which is a little bit dodgy for me. You know, it's a bit sort of hard, <laughs> hard line. And I'm, I'm not drawn to that sort of thing. Um, 
And so I wanted to fact check some of the stuff that came, you know, when I came back and what I learned recently, you know, hospital admissions for alcohol, chronic alcohol conditions, i.e. terminal illnesses are up 21% because of the last year. And mm. that's terrifying. That's absolutely mm. terrifying. That means, and women, we can only drink a bottle of wine a week. I mean, what's the bloody point? I don't get it. I don't get why, what's that supposed to do? And so anyone that, that's drinking a bottle of wine a day is a chronic drinker. Well, a bottle of wine wouldn't scratch my insides at all. It wouldn't be enough. So our drinking is out of control and it's terrifying and, and it's having a huge impact on, on the welfare of everybody around them. Yeah. You know, I'm the other part of an alcoholic, so I know both sides of the story. Um, and, and, you know, we can get away with it because who's checking up on you and, and life on Zoom yeah. makes it get away with it. Um, and, and generally, you know, drinking wine has gone up 55% and so on and so forth. Mm. So we are facing, you know, the, the consequences of the pandemic are, are pretty shocking for our sort of mental health and our physical health. Yeah. For those are, are drinking and, and drinking to excess. Yeah. Uh, so thankfully, I have remained sober and thankfully in-person meetings are now open again, as well as Zoom is continuing. So if, if you, you know, if AA is a route that anyone wants to go down, it, it's very active again. We are seeing a hell of a lot of newcomers and we're seeing a hell of a lot of women, um, more so than ever before. Mm. I was at meeting one man, 10 women in a room, and that's unheard of on an evening meeting. Normally, mm. it, 60, 40 male, female, pre-pandemic. Mm. Um, a lot of the meetings I'm going to have got a lot of women in right now, uh, which is great. I mean, I think yeah. it's fantastic. Um, yeah. Mm. I, think, I think, you know, I've personally experienced a, a lot more people willing to be, I'm, I'm quite, I, I just went on a hen night a couple of weeks ago and, and we were going in a limo and I knew that there was going to be Prosecco, so I brought my alcohol free and, you know, I didn't know a lot of them and I started drinking and I'm getting a few sideways glances. And then somebody said, oh, uh, is, is that alcohol free? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, do you mind me asking why? And I said, yeah, because lockdown turned me into a right alky, you know. <laughs> and they all went, they all, and, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, me too. But I think it's, um, you know, like you said before, our anonymity, I can't say it, but you know what I mean. Um, and... I do think that there is starting to be a shift in in people's attitudes. I think a lot more people are going, yeah, me, yeah, I, I drink too much. Um, and I don't think if it hadn't been for lockdown, I don't know if I ever would have stopped. Absolutely. I mean, like I say, it has elevated drinking. A number of things I can tell you, because I, I'm in AA, so I say I'm an alcoholic. It takes the sting out of the word a lot. One, it's I was told this in Scotland, and it's always stuck with me, because I like all of us, when we first stop drinking, we're terrified about what other people are going to think. And we don't want them to think we're alcoholic. I mean, that would be a crime word. Yeah. And I don't know what, but not, you know, um, and I remember airing my views in a meeting going, you know, I'm moving down to, to England and I'm getting this job. And if they ask, what do I say? And at the end of the meeting, this woman came up and she went, you know, Lassie, it's near fucker's business. It's near fucker's business. And it's always stuck with me. It's no one's business why I don't drink. I'm also a vegetarian. I don't feel the need to explain that to anyone either. Um, and so one, you don't need to be paranoid because it truly is no one's business. Two, I generally treat, when on the rare occasions I'm asked, I'll do one or two things. I'll either tilt my head, slap on the biggest smile and say, it's because I'm a raging alcoholic. And I'll go, <laughs> really? And you'll go, yeah. 
and they think you're hilarious because they can't imagine it because most alcoholics don't look like alcoholics because of course we're well yeah we're not, <laughs> we look better than them <laughs> Still drinking, you don't call yourself an alcoholic. It's only when you stop that you go, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> so one, one, you can do that. The other way is the AA way, right? And here, AA, our reaction to alcohol is called an allergy, which most people are sort of like, it's not an allergy, it's a willpower problem. And actually, when you think about the reaction, it's just an unusual reaction, which is what allergy means. And so a number of times I'll go and somebody say, No, you don't drink, and you say, No, I'm allergic to booze. And they'll be like, really that's so sad like, I know it's heartbreaking <laughs> Do you know what I mean? and, and so I can deal with it and they never need to know I'm an alcoholic it's really embarrassing in the village I live in because they all know I've written a book so they all know I am the local drunk and, uh, <laughs> sit on the park bench because they'll be like there she is on a flipping park bench the bloody alky um, <laughs> But it's no one's business. But when I have told people I'm in AA, because we're free to tell anybody, you know, if you want to tell yeah. somebody, you can tell somebody. But it's just at the level of press, radio and film that we keep our anonymity. Um, but when I have told people, well, all it does is turn me into a Catholic priest in their eyes and they then do their confession. And I can tell you now, I couldn't be less interested in anybody else's drinking. Yeah. Everybody everybody I tell ever and say well actually I've drunk too much in my in my young young years and I've lost the privilege they'll be like well and then they'll start telling you and it's like I'm, I'm more interested in you know probably childbirth stories than I am when you're drinking those um, <laughs> so, so they really it takes time to learn it but actually it really is nobody's business why you don't drink and if they're yeah. asking you can question them on their drinking why why are you worried about your own drinking is there something you want to talk about here yeah. Um, and generally find that they back off. It's nobody's business. I yeah. Well, you know, those people in your village pointing at the, the local alcoholic, I bet they haven't walked from Mexico to Canada and written a bloody book. So <laughs> point away. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think for people listening to this podcast, it's really important to point out that, like, you know, you you were drinking how possibly somebody is drinking right now right you were an alcoholic drinking every day drinking to excess feeling hopeless feeling awful I wasn't even drinking every day I probably drank five or six nights a week yeah I mean I I used to give myself a night off to make myself feel like I didn't have a problem Um, exactly yeah. You know, I can I cannot drink for a day, you know, I haven't got a problem, you know, holding down a job, doing all those things. But you know, you were there and you've managed to do something utterly amazing, totally bonkers, <laughs> but utterly amazing. <laughs> you know, like yeah. what what an achievement. Um and and I think it's I think it's a really strong message that like all of us are capable of like really amazing things, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. It, and, and also, I, I didn't appreciate this until, you know, we all deserve to be liked and we all deserve to be likable. And alcohol doesn't pay any respect to that. Alcohol makes twats of us all um, for yeah. the most part. And the de- most deluded thing about alcohol is it tells you that you become the most interesting person in the room. No, you don't. Have you ever been in a room full of drinkers? You realise they're really flipping boring. <laughs> they're not funny. They're not remotely entertaining. And it's just like, right, I'm done after an hour. And they're like accusing us of being the boring ones. No, that's, mm. you know, alcohol lies and it lies and lies and lies and it, and it has you believing things that are not true. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think, um, 
yeah, I mean, you, you suddenly realise that it, it may be not the most interesting, you're the most deluded. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, I had fun with my drinking. There's no denying that there were times when drinking was really bloody fun. But there were also those times when it was really bloody miserable. And and I behaved awfully, you know, I just wasn't a nice person when I was drinking, whereas now I'm a pretty nice person. I don't go around screaming at people for any reason whatsoever. Mm. Um, and that's the freedom of it. I, I know what I did last night and exactly what I did last night. I don't have to worry about what I said, did, thought, nothing. You know. Yeah, um, there's no anxiety when you wake up about checking your phone or who did I talk to or no. who did I sleep with? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as well no random no random Uh, so totally in control and like I say you know I learned along the way there are only 12 steps to the AA program I walked a bazillion um and so there's two avenues that you can do to find self-esteem and self-confidence both will lead you to self-esteem and self-confidence um I just had to try a different way um and, and that, there are, you know, I might add there are probably easier ways than walking from there are definitely easier ways. <laughs> but you don't need to walk across an entire country to feel good about yourself um that said I'd do it again in a heartbeat I hated every single second of it it's a bit like drinking and then all of a sudden it was like oh I'd love to do that again um but it's it's life began for me when I stopped drinking because I my decision making changed and how I looked at myself changed and how I felt inside changed and that continues to change um I can still have bad days you know something I learned and without being a plot spoiler but I I actually did make it to Canada and I'm very clear about that on the back page of the book so I'm not I'm not ruining the ending um but I was 2000 just you know learning I learned so much about myself and how I, you know, interact with people. I was 2,500 miles into the 2,653 mile journey. And somebody asked me a very serious question about hiking and living in a tent and living in the wilderness. And my initial response was, don't ask me, I'm a bloody novice. And somebody looked at me and said, you know everything. You have walked 2,500 miles. You have lived in a tent for five months. You know everything. And I was like, oh, my God, you're so right. I really can talk about this with authority and expertise. Mm. And it never occurred to me that I have struggled with imposter syndrome my entire life. Mm. I have never felt good enough. I've had some amazing achievements that I'm really proud of, but I will shrink them down to nothing because of how I feel inside, that I think everybody else can do it better and I am just pretending. And I realised, you know, that I can actually talk sensibly about women's women's fear, women getting out there, women's drinking, uh, women's experience of life, particularly in our 40s and where we're starting to go through mammoth changes. You know, the perimenopause kicks in, children are growing up, they're becoming teenagers and they, they change radically. And you're like, what? Um, and then they're leaving home, going to university. So, you know, this period between 40, 50 and 60, women are experiencing profound changes in their lives. And even like me, where you don't have kids, it, it's still quite a, a profound period of, of time. And if you are now drink dependent, it's no coincidence that your drinking is going to start ramping up between the ages of 40, 50 and 60. Because one, you don't have to get up in the middle of the night with a screaming toddler. Two, you know, you're getting your own freedom back. 
and three you're bloody exhausted so it's all those things going on that the drink is just going to start escalating and that's why women's drinking is a bit different to men's we have the ladette culture but generally it's, it's sort of you hit your 40s and your drinking starts to escalate whereas children and careers and responsibilities have kept it contained for quite a while and uh, and that's why really one of the reasons I sort of wrote the book because I wanted to draw attention to to the fact that you know drinking is is endemic in our country and it has a profound impact and women yet again are overlooked and women's drinking is yet again being mm. overlooked because all of our definitions when you ask women we've got a male park bench drunk drinker to define mm. alcoholism and actually women's drinking doesn't normally look like that it's it's very much home confined um we're being advertised to and it's you know it's just frightening how things are and the pandemic has really exacerbated it so if you have you know if you don't relate as an alcoholic that's absolutely fine I didn't but you'll still find something about your thoughts and your feelings and how we tick and those insecurities in the book because I write a lot about those expectations Mm. that we put on women and uh so yeah, so I now, you know, it was one of the reasons I was quite proud of writing the book because it was like, actually, I can write with authority now. And that's that's changed that imposter syndrome that I, I'm struggling with and I've always struggled with. So mm. I can now say I'm an author and I've written a book. <laughs> I still feel like a freak, but I can say. <laughs> I can walk across countries and I can write books. <laughs> Absolutely, that's it. And there's loads of, you know, and I'm changing. It's a process of change, but it's, it's I'm drink would stop all of that. Drink would keep me keep me down and keep me in a bad place so it's easier to just not drink today yeah well I have really enjoyed our chat I think um so just to just to let people know that your book is available I I bought it from Amazon um yes and it's on Kindle as well yeah yeah so either or paperback or electronic and uh, and it's called everything you ever taught me and I would be very grateful if you could read it and then give it a review because it's the reviews that help drive sales you should do you should do an audible book as well (laughs) I I would love to I would love to it's more about you know maybe next year partly time is of the essence and and partly you know these things aren't cheap they cost a lot of money so it's a sort of I'm very happy to do an audible book but it it, but everybody needs to go and buy your book so that you can afford to do it then then I can do that but then (laughs) if anyone wouldn't bought a book I'd probably go and walk back from Canada to Mexico you know so (laughs) (laughs) I'll write the book in reverse you know how I ended up drunk on the Mexican (laughs) what's like like doing it when we're not in a pandemic hopefully or maybe maybe you shouldn't do it again who knows what might happen next time this just proves that I I I don't know if I've got a short memory because I drank too much or I'm an alcoholic because I've got a short memory and I forget what it's like every time. <laughs> but I would love to go and walk again. I would do, I'd take a different route, but I would love to go and do it all again. And I, I've just forgotten how much pain I was in. And that was the mad thing. It took six months before I could actually walk normally after yeah. I'd finished walking. I was in a lot of pain for a lot of time, you know, right up until about January, I was still in pain. And I've only just got feelings back in one of, I've got two toes that are dead and one of them's just coming back. Um, wow. Wow. Well, that is the amazing ability of the human body, isn't it? To completely yeah. forget pain. <laughs> well, we wouldn't, I mean, the worst hangovers. Sometimes you were like, I'm really dying. And yet I yeah. still drank it. Yeah. Yeah. Some I'm drinking the next day. I'd be drinking, still having the shakes from the binge of the night before. And 
yeah yeah you have come so far and thank you so much for coming on and telling us your story and maybe we'll have you back in some capacity again if you want oh, to yeah I can yeah. talk about drinking forever. I really, I love recovering. I love talking about people getting well. And I love talking about, you know, how we feel inside and how we think. It's, it's top topics for me. So yeah, be very happy to come back, Sarah. Yeah, okay. So this was Personal Responsible and your book is Everything You Ever Taught Me. And uh, I am must, I am, I must. And you've been listening to the Sober Town podcast. Please go and check us out. So thank you very much. And I'll, we'll catch up with you again soon.